Ma'am, I'm not emotionally involved. Well, I am! Christ! Welcome back to Quaid in Full, the podcast with all the fox to give about actor Dennis Quaid. I'm unwelcome bachelor party cake surprise Sarah D. Bunting, and I'm here with Manic Pixie ceiling art Jeb Lund. Hello, Jeb. And here I was feeling like an abandoned wig. <laughs> Poor Lorraine. <laughs> Oh boy. So today we're going to be discussing what I recall as like, I feel like it was positioned as an arty, malicky entry in the Quaid oeuvre, 1993's Flesh and Bone. But before we do that, I believe we have a little bit of pod business. Uh, our weekly Denaissance status check-in. Have you listened to any more Denaissance since last we spoke? So I'm staying in a house that has an Alexa, which is kind of a bad thing if you don't want to hear a six-year-old ask to hear the final countdown about every 40 <laughs> minutes. Uh, like, why, why did I let him listen to album-oriented rock radio? <laughs> but, uh, like I tried, I was like trying to get Alexa to do that. And then I just sort of, I got like, you know, it, it every now and again, it just balks at what you tell it because... A friend of mine told me the secret to all like Alexa Siri stuff is, you know, because if you actually pronounce things correctly, it winds up even more mangled right. than if you just sort of mush mouth through it anyway. But if you really take it easy on it, it's going to be bad. So you have to get what he described as the perfect bus driver voice channel how you sound like a bus driver and then Siri <laughs> understands you. So okay. I'm trying to do that, but I'm hitting the wall. And instead, I just immediately get like... In 1482, you know, just sort of like a weird, like BBC radio podcast thing. I'm not getting the denaissance. I'm getting the history stuff. Okay. Gotcha. And then I leave that on because it's improving. And it's, you know, recorded properly. Yeah. I mean, and honestly, if you want to hear anything about Brunelleschi, love to talk about him. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Good to know. Good to know. Having watched all of Kenneth Clark's Civilization on VHS <gasps> yeah, back no, in the I day, like I, fe- I feel like that still left some gaps. So the next time I ask any automated algorithmic assistant about the Denaissance, I look forward to getting um, getting those gaps filled in. I have not listened to the Denaissance either, and I can't blame it on Siri. I just didn't do it. I have accumulated significant guilt since recent guests have forged ahead with the Denaissance further than we have, which is saying almost nothing, of course. But we made it 26 seconds. I mean, yeah, it, it felt longer. That's not nothing. You can put like three bad Johnny Damon movies in there or no, no Luke Perry. Right. Didn't he do the, uh, the Rodia one eight seconds. Was that it? Yes. Yeah. And a question mark. I love that Johnny Damon blundered into that reference somehow. That was great. Did, did I say Damon or I thought I said Depp? I was trying to think of it. The, he was <laughs> in one that was like t- Depp. I was just hearing Johnny Damon. Johnny Damon. <laughs> Listen, essentially less likable with time alcoholics, kind of in the same silo there. So you're not going too far afield. I feel like he is a guy who has a podcast too. Yeah. It's not the Damasance, but I feel like it exists. It's, it's like a 24-piece breaded fried shrimp 
dinner of a podcast <laughs> on uh-huh. the beach somewhere, like with a name like The Back Porch. Yeah, probably. And it, it smells like light beer. Or not even light beer. Um, what's the name they have for, have for it? Like uh, the ultra style beers. Enhanced? Yeah, so, whole, I don't want yeah. that at all. I don't know what that is. Is that like beer with electrolytes in it? Or? No, enriched. Salt in I think it's like Jesus. enriched adult beverages, which is like so... Oh, you like you think he's like crushing truly? Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, no, totally, because it's sugar free. Uh huh. And it's better than the claw. The claw is like the one that tastes like Necco wafers. (laughs) Oh, it does. Yeah, it's chalky. It's not good. It's uh, what was uh, Dave had a line? It's like it tastes like an alcohol product from Pfizer, I think. Or (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Well, we truly, truly is the way, you know, but you stay away from like the banana and the coconut ones. Cause that's, that's when you're getting back into like, is this something that like a children's, like a visiting room at a pediatrician's office is supposed to smell like? Cause that's not how I want to be drunk. No. Like that's if, why if Triaminic came on a shot ski <laughs> is where we're at. Like it's something that doesn't taste as good as Dimatap, which actually has medicinal properties. Like how, how do you fuck it up that much that you're like, you know, honestly, I'd just rather have some Dimatap. I, I mean, really fake grape, buddy. You had one job. Anyway, uh, we're diving into this movie. I can y- tell. Yeah, I, we have one <laughs> job and that's to talk about flesh and bone and we're, we're sucking at it. Here's a plot summary by way, sort of. of a contemporary review by our old friend Rita Kempley in the Washington Post. Nice. An ill-considered marriage of Greek tragedy and Hollywood romance, Flesh and Bone simply never tops its masterfully staged prologue, which depicts the protagonist's role in a multiple murder 25 years earlier. A seemingly lost little boy, actually a shill for his thieving father, James Kahn, is taken in by a kind-hearted Texas couple stuffed full of fried chicken and put to bed with their kids. After midnight, the boy opens the door for Kahn, who plans only to steal the silver but winds up killing everybody in the family but the baby. In a twist that went out with Sophocles, the boy, Arliss, Dennis Quaid, and the baby, Kay, Meg Ryan, meet again years later and gradually fall in love. That's pretty much it. There's a, calling it a climactic sequence is not really right because it takes forever. Like, I, I feel like a climax is supposed to have, you know, climactic qualities. This is something that you've seen coming for a long time. And then finally it occurs. And then there's this like minor key lack of resolution resolution in which Kay is lured back to the farmhouse by James Kahn and his girlfriend slash sidekick Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then Dennis Quaid is obliged to kill James Kahn, but then he never reveals to Kay who, like, what their relationship is to the death of her parents. She thinks they died in a car crash. It is sort of Sophoclean, I guess. So that's the plot, but I feel like the director, Steve Cloves, who also wrote and directed Fabulous Baker Boys, um, roles that were turned down by Dennis and Randy Quaid, FYI, I feel like he's more interested in doing kind of a tone poem about small town Texas life in the early 90s than he necessarily is in the plot, which seems like it might have come from a, I don't know, MFA program's like writing prompt with all of that said i didn't hate this movie 
I'd never seen it before. I was expecting it to be extremely pretentious and annoying, and it's only sort of those things. Had you ever seen this before we had to prep it for this? No, this this is getting into the years when I was super busy in high school, you know, trying to get into the right college and had all those extracurriculars. And, you know, you, I wasn't going to movies as much. I didn't have the money. And, right. you know, like you're, you're busy going to see like shitty all ages shows. So we're starting sure. to get into the part where like, I don't even remember the ad campaigns for these things. Like I just, you know, I watched like the Simpsons and the X-Files and nothing else, mm-hmm. you know, uh, kind of era. And so this was like, I also just, I don't know what I thought this was. I didn't think it was this. Mm-hmm. I, it just seemed like that kind of title couldn't have been as, um, I don't know, restrained as, as this was. And uh, so I was pleasantly surprised. I wasn't like, I'll get into it in a bit, but um, I, I'm, I'm sort of interrupting you. you. No, not really. Um, I had never watched this before. My recollection from the time was that this was a sort of big swing for Quaid and Ryan as on-screen partners that missed big time and was just this sort of like turgid, static, miscast vanity project. It's really not that at all. I I think there are some tonal issues, but I was expecting just kind of an indie mess. And Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not great. It's not like a legendary underrated gem. It's not a mess either. It is sort of interesting. The writing prompt is interesting. Yeah. But once it's clear what their relationship was and then is, you're kind of wishing they'd get to the abandoned fireworks factory and set some shit <laughs> off. It is too long. I think it's two hours and six minutes and I, you could easily get, you could lose 15 minutes. Mm-hmm from that but i thought it was okay like i don't know what you could really do differently to make it like an a plus but it's fine it's fine yeah so i I think this may have been you know just a victim of expectations Uh, i'm sure you know like you said people are probably making a big deal about quaid and ryan being in this and so the expectations that they must have some you know, crackle with the material, even though they're playing people other than Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan. And so that should not flow right. as an argument. You know, like these, these are not necessarily people who are going to be just like them back home when the lights are off. Um, yeah. But yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if, if you're expecting that to be, you know, like some transporting romance, it would be disappointing. But for the movie that you get, like you said, the writing prompt is interesting. And I, I will just, I'll, I'll, I'll push in these chips here in the same way that like, Ebert suddenly gets a different edge when he's writing about a movie about alcoholism or or drug dependency. Mm -hmm. Like he just has like an intuitive empathy. Like this is a very different movie if you are grew up in a physically abusive household. Mm -hmm. And the whole like the the pattern of of father son violence in this is, um, I think, well explored. And if if you're looking for a tone poem on that on how you function as a product of that without wanting to continue that even if you think it's in your blood the hauntingness of like of quaid works the irresolution works the 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 agonizing like the length of time you spend waiting for him to finally pull the trigger and the fact that it's taken him this long all of that 
really flows. <laughs> the, uh, you know, the moment where his uh, her just cheap jack uh, husband who spent away his uh, his patrimony hits her and Quaid has the license then in that moment to mm-hmm. do the violence that you know he's capable of and doesn't like that's more evocative because it's like what happens if you take the cap off finally if you know that deep down you are in a better of this and a product of this like this is the moment where you, you the monster in you is a just monster and yet he sits there and he seems almost diminished by it and and uh there's a lot of those moments where like i think the dopey galoot of quaid plays well to an arrested development of permanent boyhood when confronted by certain aspects of masculinity. And I don't know how much spin he's trying to put on there and how much I'm reading, but that would be my Ebert take is like, I can pull a lot out of this and I had to stop watching it for a bit. Cause like it was, I'm stuck at a house in the snow with my kid and I yelled at him that day and I was like, you know, I, I, like I just stopped and thought for about a and then actually i drifted off and then i got woke up and i had to watch the rest but uh but yeah i mean right. like it, it works very well on that level yeah there are some moments in here that sort of exist outside of the material in terms of quaid's performance and his like relationship to the text but we will get back to him in a second first let us confer with ebert himself he gave this movie two stars out of four, his primary beef seems to be with Khan's performance, which I think is interesting. He thinks it's just like very joyless and strained, and you're very aware that you're watching someone earn a paycheck. I guess I don't disagree, but I actually had in my notes before reading Ebert's review that it was interesting to watch James Khan and Dennis Quaid on screen together because I think there are parallels between those two actors in terms of the fact that they are cast for more or less the same thing every time. Mm -hmm. And also that they wound up playing authority figures in television shows set in Las Vegas (laughs) is kind of an interesting thing. Anyway, I thought, I I thought Quaid nailed the, the con shoulders really well like the you know yeah. you know the jimmy con shoulders always seem like they're arched up like he's about to go i don't know you know like and when he's angry like one cocks up a little bit more and quaid just sort of got into that space which also was just a few clicks away from the hunch of like i'm expecting to be struck yeah i have the posture of the victim and my victimizer like woven into me was i thought good yeah I mean, it's interesting because I think that a a role like this, which I kept thinking of um, Heath Ledger in Brokeback Mountain and how when an actor is asked to play a character who is very interior and reticent as written, so you're not going to be able to do a whole lot with dialogue, but also this is not somebody who would be like performatively rolling his eyes and indicating in his life like ennis is not like that and neither is arliss Mm -hmm. so i always found that performance from heath ledger so impressive and dennis quaid has a couple moments here where like he he lends um meg ryan a shirt and jeans and then when she gets her clothes back she gives them back and you can see there's this moment in the truck where he looks down at it and he's thinking about smelling it 
and then he decides not to. And for Dennis Quaid to be able to show you these thoughts of a guy who's not used to necessarily examining his own thoughts is Mm -hmm. surprising to me. Like, Dennis Quaid is not an incompetent actor, but this kind of gentle, or like, not gentle, but um, extremely fine, like, interiority is not something that I would have expected to see, just because I've seen him attempt it in other projects and not succeed. So it was interesting to see him doing it here versus, I'm sorry to keep slagging her from heaven, it's not a bad movie, but... That performance was just like impacted versus interior. So it was it was kind of neat to see him just do it and not seem like he was straining at stool. I do wonder, I mean, I wonder if if the presence of Meg Ryan on the set maybe made him, you know, more comfortable with vulnerability or maybe just Steve Cloves kind of got it. And I don't know, I, I kind of you, you don't. I don't think you write this sort of story if if you're not kind of, um, you know, you don't have some experience with that kind of anxiety and maybe just the mannerliness of it kind of came through from the direction. But it's nice to see. I mean, it, you, you, and I guess it kind of makes me frustrated that people ask only so much of the same things, because if you can get these bits this strongly out, you know, with a little work, what, what else could we what, what else could we have done here? You know, we we wouldn't have needed the rookie. Yeah. How did you feel about their um, on-screen chemistry? I thought it was pretty good. I felt like Meg Ryan's customary energy was maybe not harnessed properly all the time, but I mean, it was an enjoyable performance. Gwyneth Paltrow is fucking amazing in this, by the way. Well, I mean, I got to say, though, like there's only there's two things that Gwyneth Paltrow just absolutely delivers. And it's look helpless and cry and look bored and smoke. And she (laughs) smokes and is bored the hell out of this movie. And it's so good. Uh Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, like I I was I, you know, and that that kind of like, oh, no, I'm about to see an intert performance kind of way (laughs) from somebody breaking, you know, their bonds. I was like uh, Meg Ryan as a a would be stripper. Or like would be, you know, bachelor party gangbang girl, not really sure where this was going yet. I was like, oh, no, this was her broadening her horizons. And for the most part, I, I think you're right, too. Like the, the energy works. It just sometimes it drifts into a little too upbeat. And when she's trying, I think, to negotiate how you would be manically happy to find yourself free, but only have a pattern of attaching yourself to other people and going between those two and dealing with, you know, rejecting your anchor. Like, obviously, you're going to be a bit all over the map. And sometimes it's a little bit too kind of like, I don't want to say cute, because I think that sells her short, uh, even though that's her brand. But um, it, 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 yeah, I mean, manic, uh, pixie, and not just manic. Yeah, I think based on, like, Ebert sort of makes a reference to her being, um, quote, artificially bright, which I'd, I think is what she's going for that. I think that sort of manic energy of um, like the adrenaline of this, of these life changes and her response to them and sort of often being in a position where she's needing to affect super cheeriness Mm -hmm. that all plays, but it's, it's all close enough to the sort of, or Meg Ryan idea. Of just like bubbly, perky, 
a little bit slapsticky. Like they're a little too close. So it's hard to separate what she's going for here with that, like, you know, you've got male Meg Ryan ness. I mean, I wasn't annoyed. No, and like, and even I, I, I caught myself feeling surly at, at Paltrow because her, uh, her facial cast just seemed too patrician and kind of supercilious for, you know, what's supposed to be sort of this white trashy kind of, uh, figure, but even, you know, she just out sullen to me, you know, like she was just so pissed at everything and <laughs> stayed so consistently pissed. And I was like, well, you know, like she, she owned it. And, um, uh, the same thing with like every kind of twangy note that came out of the Ryan performance. It's like the rest of it is, is going for it in the right way. And we're doing the right thing here, or at least we're trying. Yeah. Thank you. There are some moments where this felt like a play that had been filmed that I didn't care for. There are other aspects of the production that I will object to in a moment, but here's a big speech from Meg Ryan about, I mean, she tries really hard, but this is one of those spots where the stereotypical Meg Ryan is sort of in a battle with both the dialogue and the character's energy, and it's just not quite working. Like, unfortunately, if you're going to make a movie about these characters in this setting, you have to stop and ask yourself, self, is this how people who start drinking beer at 10.30 in the morning talk about, <laughs> like, turning points in their lives? Maybe not. Uh, Clip two. Well, let me let me stop you there. Did they go to grad school? <laughs> Did they go to grad school? Are they in grad school? I mean, that's the other one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Then then perhaps these uh these meta conversations in the front seat of a like performatively vintage pickup truck filled with dead chickens is is not on. And she just got through talking about how much she loves George Jones. Like, okay, their country with a K, we got it. Anyway, here's clip two. Moment. Little split seconds of time where you find yourself capable of things you would never even think of doing normally. Like back there holding that gun. There was a moment when my finger twitched. Not so you could see. More like inside, under the skin. Some crazy little muscle. And I could have done it. I could have shot him right in the face. My whole life would have changed in one tiny little second. It's not in your blood. I mean, weirdly, that line from him is just as not credible, but I buy it from him and not her. Yeah, well, he's driving, so he could be distracted, too. You know, I was like, well, the line, the, the line reads maybe not perfect, but he could have been making a left or, you know, there's somebody coming up. Yeah. Well, there's like All a right. big, you know, it's dirt roads. You're trying to avoid potholes so as not to upset your painted chickens. Yeah. I mean, you, you like hit three or four armadillos in a row. You're going to knock one of the baskets out of the flatbed and then you're fucked. Yeah. Well, that's a whole other movie that actually I would probably watch. <laughs> There's a writing prompt. <laughs> Armadillo breakdown. Desert Dillo. Uh, that's the, that's your kind of like the descent, but like gas or, food Dillos. Yeah, but for, with armadillos. Yeah, <laughs> or like Night of the Lepus, but with armadillos. Sure. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, th- there is the, the kind of the grad school over, uh, you know, over exploration, which is funny. Like I was, I was talking with a friend of mine, and just recently, and we were both talking about like having the irresistible urge when crossing a bridge just to jump off of it. Mm-hmm. Like you know, just like just see what happens. Like fuck it, you know, and like and having had that kind of ground in since six or seven or something, just this weird like you know, crossing a bridge. Like if I stop and here for too long i'm going to think about it just keep walking and and you know like the accumulated education between the two of us was quite a lot but it was like dude did you i mean have you ever been crossing a bridge and just thought like yeah what the hell into the drink <laughs> you know like it's not momentous right you know like have you ever felt that tremor within your flesh when crossing something littoral and you know like no yeah well, or it's like that line in Sling Blade where the kid's like, you ever get a feeling and you don't know why? Like, that's that's what people say in these situations, I think. Yeah. Uh, I'd also like to know, not for the last time, I suspect, on this podcast, that indie film or early 90s films idea of small town slash low income slash country folks living clearly great care was taken with the production design but it just felt assertively quaintly dust bowlish in this way that didn't read to me like again these mid-century dinette sets are actually not cheap it would not be that well kept and like nobody has a ford from the 80s they're all from the 60s i'm not a car guy but they're like all over the state nobody has a car from the reagan administration when are we yeah that was a little disorienting for me too like i didn't know because there is such an in cold blood attitude uh or atmosphere to the Mm. opening scene but that could put us really anywhere there aren't a lot of signifiers that are placing us for certain in a decade yeah one way or another like i thought honestly this could be the depression so when we jump forward in time i thought well maybe it's the early 60s because then we have people talking about how scandalous it is that there are rubbers machines in the bathrooms at a diner where you know people also sorts of diners where people also hold bachelor parties so i you know it just it did not seem to be really of any time and place other than something that could successfully freight and atmosphere and look of dilapidation and people who seemed both beaten down and unsophisticated enough to do the uh, the passive what did america do to us paul questioning that we need for like the moral to come out yeah maybe you're right like maybe i'm maybe i'm wrong to assume that we're supposed to think everything's happening in the present day because certainly the flashback that we start with there's a depression read there. But on the other hand, like all of that stuff looks old. It's not like old stuff that was new at the time. It's just old stuff. I, I don't know. It, it, yeah. I guess it doesn't really matter. There should be a, like a, a, a boxy Nissan going by at some point. And you're like, oh, that's a 1984 Nissan. Like just to tell us that there is something that is less than 30 years old. Yeah. Maybe it is supposed to exist out of time. Um. I have to say that I'm not sure I would have made the connection to the killing of the Clutter family without the 
Amazon trivia module. And then Ebert also refers to it in his review. We'll link that and Kempley's in the show notes, by the way. Yeah, I just wasn't getting that sense of it. Of course, then like Scott Wilson shows up in a different role completely and he was in the movie Cold Blood. So it was like, all right, but I mean, is this is this really a vibe that's there or have I just been told to look for this? So I'm seeing it. What was your take on that? I think actually that's probably closer to it because it's something that I I read about half of. Um, I read like half of my wife's copy in some apartment or another and then never finished it. And so most of my accumulated cultural significance from it is just what I learned from other people. So for all I know, I'm hearing like the in cold blood version of people saying nuclear, <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I do want to point out before before we get too far afield, though, this is our second uh, Quaid and uh, Scott Wilson thing because he was uh, Scott Crossfield in The Right Stuff. That's right. And it's our second Arliss. Yes, I, I'm, I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> I, was, I was like, Arliss. But, you know, I just like I love seeing Scott Wilson because he's in everything because he's yeah. like he's Sam Braun on, on CSI or like Herschel on The Walking Dead or Dr. Goyot on, uh, as you might say, Thank or you. Was. He was on like the first episode. You're welcome. I did like it was funnier than I expected it to be for something as as dismal. Like there was quirk in it, right? And and this was at an era where it was still. I think a lot of people were like, "Well, that can't be a serious movie about trauma." People laughed once, and mm. so that was all right. Um, specifically, the scene where she wakes up in the hotel room, still in her stripper outfit, and she's in a room full of painted chickens and. Uh, colored coins and, and condoms like 72 packs of condoms and yeah that that was good there were some bits where it didn't play like i think the scene with her husband was supposed to play like he was supposed to be a figure of fun and for whatever reason that really did not work for me probably primarily yeah. because he put hands on her but they, yeah, they uh... seem to be trying to play it as like check out this idiot rube that she's gonna throw over for dennis quaid because it's dennis quaid it's like mm, all right well if this is supposed to be funny wrong choice but do it faster yeah like I, it really didn't help that he looks like if jean ralphio was from like denton <laughs> that's exactly what he looks like <laughs> And just uh, speaking of other TV references, uh, there's a bit where he picks up a, a fortune cookie, fortune teller card and says, if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. And it's in the murder she wrote font, which mm. <laughs> yeah. made me happy. Yeah. I mean, look, just use Zoltar. <laughs> right. Would you, would you like to deliver your numerical rating first or shall I? Uh, I can go first. I I think I'm carrying a lot with this. I I, I do agree that you know it, the, some of the chemistry doesn't click. I think the I almost wanted them to be more Hollywoody with the ending and challenge him to you know to stay and then watch his trepidation as like he realizes he's taking someone into his care, but the walking away just felt like it felt like a somewhat easier choice because you you have to if you have him just sort of going irresolutely into the distance that's sort of like that's easy with noir but that's mm, not yeah that's not how you have to function if you're the sort of person who has been traumatized like this at some point you do have to at least make the attempt and and to re-engage and since we haven't seen that in his past like where it has gone wrong you know maybe you know presage it with a a bad you know a comment that just 
seems a little sour at the end and and has the ambiguity that way but i felt like you know it would be nice it would have been nice to see them sort of break the cycle as opposed to him walk away with the conclusion that it is in his flesh and blood but Mm. um i thought for the subject matter and for the time period and just for the like cinematography which was pleasant and for scott wilson who i i love um i'd give it like a 6.5 i think it was considerably better than average but you know like you said could have been trimmed and and could have been reshot a couple times for for maybe a better delivery yeah i i that's about where i am this uh could have been better in a lot of ways but this should have been a disaster in a lot of ways and it actually was good and it was really beautiful to look at even when it shouldn't have been and i you know he was surprising it was surprising i don't need to see it again but i'm glad that i've seen it so i'm gonna go with a seven okay probably a little higher than it deserves but these aren't becoming black letter law so it's fine all right quaid qua quaid i think we've really dug into this plenty already but we may have more to say i'm gonna play a clip that i thought was representative of this performance even though it might not sound like it but that's why it's representative that might make sense after this clip I'm his kin, you understand? I got no choice. So don't think this is some game that you're playing. Last night it could have just as easy been you out there bleeding in the rain. Only difference is he'd have left you behind. Or finished the job himself. Well, shit. <laughs> no wonder old Black Eyes loves you. He wouldn't have the balls to sue a fly off a stake. This is a really interesting clip to me because I think that the character is having is having a struggle with how to deliver this speech to Ginny, the Paltrow character, versus uh, like it's tempting to listen to that and be like, well, uh, Dennis Quaid is overmatched, so he's retreating into the foghorn leghorn um yeah p- portion of his performance catalog i boy, don't i say i say boy I, 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 I say i say i don't think that's what's happening um I, <laughs> that's a dog son that ain't a chicken <laughs> i i mean there's a chicken hawk joke and i can't i just can't <laughs> what uh, you doing son pumping for oil you need a drill son not a tire pump oh god <laughs> you, you done I'm done. Okay, I thought there might be another one. I didn't want to step on it. No, I'll stop, I'll stop. <laughs> I'm going to step on you. <laughs> Completely lost my train of thought. Say something. Oh, I'm so sorry. Well, so he gets he gets choked up in the leghorn voice and, and uh, doesn't know what to do. Like, I thought that was, I, I liked, I didn't think this was as foregone a conclusion, like uh, plot wise as, as Ebert and... Uh, and others made it out because mm. there was the hint that maybe they knew that they had given the girl away and that maybe they knew where she was and maybe his dad had gotten back, gone back and gotten her and groomed her. Mm. And so he was haunted by seeing the girl grown up. And then so when he finds Meg Ryan, he's completely guileless about it. Right. Because he assumes that this grifter must be the perverted 
you know, warped version of the baby they rescued. And so I thought that was a little bit more ambiguous, but the, the way he's sort of chasing after her, oh, like he's aware of the was, danger. I agree. But then once it's clear who yeah. is who, then the showdown, I don't know. What did you think was going to happen once they all got out to the house? Like, did you assume no con gets out alive? Honestly, like, you know, from all, all of my friends who I've had the same, like, can you still not beat your old man's ass? joking conversations that aren't really joking like i i would have been wholly unsurprised if they went in there and he stood there impotently while james con shot him mm. or shot everybody else you know and just and he had to watch and like he's still eight and he's always going to be eight right yeah i didn't think that part was foregone actually like i did because i kn knew the ending because i read reviews oh. while i was watching it because i'm a real smart smarty but i still thought it was played well to leave you in some doubt as to how it was going to go and that it's it felt true even though this was the outcome but another outcome also would have felt true so the thing i was having trouble with is like we we always talk about you know the the sort of the shark in quaid as being <laughs> yeah. kind of like peak quaid but you know the other side of that coin is is galoot right and he's hitting the galoot button really well it's just wounded galoot right but it that is like, I think he got a beautiful level of nuance out of what is one of the kind of the pillars of Quaid, while the other one, and I remember I read a review from Owen Gleiberman who said something about it being a crime that you would have someone like Dennis Quaid who's known for like this, you know, lighting up a thousand suns kind of smirk and not have him smirk once in the movie. Yeah, I don't think we see his teeth like ever. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it for the kind of Quaid that he can deliver, this is among those pillars that sort of undergird what we think of as like Ur Quaid, mm -hmm. he is is striking that, you know, he's 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 maxing out that characteristic and doing a really good job of it. So I don't know, you know, do I ding him? Is it a five because it's only half of the Quaid experience? Right. I mean, are, when we talk about Quaid qua Quaid, are we talking about that holistic Quaid with the smirk? Because then, yeah, obviously it's a five. And that's where I was, you know, I was like, how much Quaid-teria are we bringing in? <laughs> that sounds like a disease that you pick up from drinking river water. Um, Either that or something you have to like massage your ficus to get it to stop growing on it. You know, like just soapy water. And... <laughs> yeah. You have to use distilled water. Totally. Um, <laughs> I had the same, I had the same struggle because I think he's excellent in this. And I think it is an atypical excellence, not that he can't be good, but that this kind of quiet performance is not the kind of good Quaid performance that you that you would describe if you were describing a typical Quaid performance. So he's on screen a ton. He's doing some really interesting things. I think he was directed extremely well. It made me want to see what Fabulous Baker Boys would have looked like with him and Randy. Yeah. I don't think it would have been as good, but I'm interested in it as a thought experiment. But as far as rating this, it's like this isn't this isn't all that quady, but it's like it's sort of shockingly excellent. And I I feel like more people need to know that he did this. But I, st okay. I still am only going to say a six because it's just not like I really don't think we see his teeth for two hours. It's not very quaity. It's good. It's just not typical. Yeah. I mean, it does open this, the discussion to the, the concept of Dennis Quaid 
doing an excellent job of betraying what is authentically Dennis Quaid and then yeah. actually being able to produce a product that we can box out of the realm of Quaid as not qualifying, even though it was produced by him. And I was, you know, I wondered, <laughs> are we, are we going to enter that kind of paradox? If a Quaid falls in the forest. I think then if we're going to go with that kind of conceptual framework, I just want to like kind of up you a little bit then just for purely personal reasons. So I'll do 6.5. <laughs> okay. I don't feel great about the six. I feel like I should maybe give the quadiness of it like a two and then his performance a 10 so that I can average them out and feel a little better about it bumbling in at a six. But I just, I don't think this is very typical despite the, the Texas accent. So, well, it's our podcast. Fuck it. Next time on Quaid in Full, Wyatt Earp. In the meantime, no need to go through your fellow passenger stuff to check out the show notes. They're right in your player. And why not follow the podcast on Twitter at Pod. You can get even more content at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash quaidinfull. Quaidinfull is hosted by Sarah D. Bunting and Jeb Lund and edited by Jeb Lund. Don't subscribe yet? Put down that hen you're dying and go sign up wherever you get your podcasts. And rate and review Quaid in Full so other people can find it. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. God bless whoever you are. <laughs>